Well, sex is a subject matter that sells, isn't it? I mean, S-E-X, just the, the letters alone seem to grab attention from most eyes. Sex is on people's minds. It may not be on everyone's mind all of the time, um, but it's something that we are, we're bombarded with, the, um, the ideas about sexuality, certainly the media is saturated with it. Is that a fair statement? I mean, it's, it's something that you can't escape. We don't tend to spend a lot of time talking about it um, in church, but it's very important to do so. This morning, um, we're going to look at some passages in Scripture, particularly bouncing out of the one that was just read. Um, and I hope that we will move towards a better understanding of sex. And I've entitled this series, Morning and Night Will Be Different, um, called it Pure Sex. The story goes of a teenage boy and his grandfather. They're out fishing, and uh, while they're fishing, the old man starts talking about how times have changed. And the young fellow picks up on this and starts talking about the various problems that he's um, hearing people talk about in society, in, including sexually transmitted diseases that go around. And the teenager says, Grandpa, they didn't seem to have these issues when you were younger um, with all these diseases. And the grandfather says, nope. And the, the grandson says, well, what did you guys use for safe sex? And of course, the grandpa says, we used a wedding ring. And it's not that sex is always safe, as we know, in a marriage, but there's a whole lot of truth in that. The Bible gives us two clear purposes for sex. We find them in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, God created people and tells them to multiply and fill the earth. Now, like uh, most children, they probably put off the command. I imagine until they did it, what was required to multiply, and they thought, wow, this isn't so bad, right? This is, this is a good gift from our Father. He wants us to multiply, so sex will be involved in that. And um, it's also given for two people to come together, a man and a woman, in oneness, sex sticks them together. So two really big ideas from Genesis. Sex is for procreation, having children, because God said, I want you to fill this earth, multiply. And it's for sticking a man and a woman together in marriage so that there is a safe place for those children to grow up in. Well, this particular message I've entitled The Naked Truth. We're coming out of winter, and uh, over time, we will start taking off the layers. Hornsby Baptist Sunday morning service, we're known for our layers, aren't we? It's like a service in Poland, they always think, when we look out, it's grey, not so much today, but normally people in the old church, covered up in all of our layers. Well, we come out of, out of winter and we find often a few extra pounds as the, as the layers come off. And we find in the mirror the naked truth. 
I think it's true to say that every one of us desires to experience relationships that are naked. Now, I don't mean physical. I mean emotional. I mean relational. I think we have a great desire to be accepted as we are. Amen? In, in the raw, so to speak. To be just me, to be naked without having to put the, the makeup on and the layers to cover up who I actually am. In fact, I think there is a longing within us as human beings to have naked sex. Now, I'm not trying to be funny by saying it. People, people have sex with their clothes on, don't they? Because of the layers of pain throughout their lives. The great, within a marriage, the, the great hunger that we have is to actually connect in a vulnerable way where we are truly naked with one another in that marriage, to become one. But for so many of us, it's like we can't get there because we have these layers and layers of pain. Um, I wonder if you would agree, as you reflect on life, that one of the great lies that society propagates is that if you try before you buy, that's a terrible phrase, but if you... If you live together before marriage, then you'll have a better chance of finding that vulnerability and intimacy later. Is that, that's an argument that's put out there, right? It's actually, it's actually again and again shown to be completely the opposite. As a pastor, I, I don't know, just in my personal anecdotal evidence, it is overwhelmingly the opposite, that people who have been very promiscuous before marriage, find it so, so hard to find that true naked vulnerability and intimacy. It's the opposite. It's the opposite of what society is telling us. And with this whole understanding of our sexuality, we have to constantly deconstruct what society is telling us. Because it, society tells us lies. And we, unless we deconstruct it, and reflect. We'll just take it on board. Why, why is this the case? Well, Genesis 2, let me read it again. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper, helper suitable for him. The Lord God had formed um, out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. Now, when we understand, try to understand sex, the idea of one flesh is one of the major issues that we have to try to understand. One flesh. So God is in heaven before he creates anything at all. 
And Genesis 1, verse 1, gives us a picture of what it's like. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning, there was God. He created out of his word and the Spirit hovered over the waters. We know this, don't we? In the beginning, there was three. Three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before the Trinity created anything at all, they were completely satisfied in and of themselves. Amen? The Trinity, perfection of what? Perfection of relationship. Our God is a relational God before he has to create anything. Perfectly one. And then out of the glory of relationship, God creates. When God created human beings, he said, it's not good for them to be alone. In fact, it's a bizarre thing, isn't it? And very interesting that the only thing that wasn't right before the fall was the aloneness of Adam. So God creates human beings and and says to Adam, I want you to have a helpmate. I want you to have someone else to, to, to enjoy community with. And with this woman, you will become one flesh. And I don't think it's too much to say. God was giving humanity some way, some way to understand in a finite fashion the connection that is spiritual between the Trinity themselves. The oneness of the Trinity. I know it's a big call to say, but I think when you look at it, you study it, there's this idea of the oneness of God and this idea of husband and wife becoming one flesh. We don't become God, but there's something uniquely spiritual about the image of the husband and wife together connecting that mirrors something of the intense intimacy of the Godhead. Sex and marriage, man and woman coming together as one flesh, joined physically and spiritually in a way that we don't really understand. And out of that union coming what? The actual potential of life itself. You tell me if sex is is ordinary. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable when you go back to the start, man and woman, and then they come together and join more than physically. And out of that holy union, humanity emerges. Um, I, I think it is as full on as I'm trying to make it. And uh, I would suggest to you that it's too big. It's too holy. Sex is too holy to be handled in a relational environment, anything less than marriage. That's why marriage matters. But if sex is demeaned and made nothing and unholy, then it doesn't matter what um, carriage it's held in. But when it is as holy as we see it from the start, it's designed for marriage alone. Check out this imagery. You may not have ever noticed it, but just how... How much connection there is with salvation, the new birth, physical to be born again, and the idea of sex. 
and, and, and of, of marriage. Salvation, I'll work with um, Nev here. Salvation is the new birth, John 3, 5. The new birth. We're born of God by his seed, 1 John 3, 9. The Greek word is sperma. We are born as Christians of the sperma of God. God has ordained it that when a male sperm meets a female egg, 50% of the man's genetic code is embedded in that sperm. 50% of the female's genetic code is, is in that egg. 23 chromosomes meets 23 chromosomes. To make 46 and you have a human life. When you become a Christian... Isn't it true that we get something of the genetic code of God in us? Isn't that like the whole idea that we would be born again of the Spirit and we would be changed? There would be some sense of identity implanted in us. The covenant with Abraham by circumcision. Genesis 17. The foreskin was a covering. God says, take it away. It will represent this unity and intimacy that we share, my people and me. The churches are what? Jesus is the bridegroom. Church is a bride, Ephesians 5. The return of Christ is described as a wedding, Matthew 25. Song of Solomon, sexual attraction, a metaphor for divine passion. Are you getting this? I mean, it's, it's, it's so linked. People unfaithful to God are sometimes called prostitutes or harlots, Revelation 14. God's faithful people, 2 Corinthians 11, are what? Virgins. God is Israel's husband. Their separation is divorce, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 50. Sexuality has its origin in the divine personality of God and he has given us this way of connecting in marriage in some small measure to experience what he has known in his eternal trinity forever there's something so special about sex in marriage it's truly holy that's what I would suggest to you it's a holy thing pure and set apart for sacred use. What did God show us in the Old Testament about um, things that are holy? Like himself, the tabernacle. It was something about the hidden. It was set apart. Um, the, the, the high priest would go and meet with God in a, in a set apart, holy fashion. Moses takes his shoes off because the ground is holy. God didn't do that because he was embarrassed. He wasn't hiding away inside the tabernacle. It was to let the people know that true intimacy is not ordinary. Amen? True intimacy. To know God. For a husband to know a wife, it's not ordinary. I mean... We need to just shout that from the rooftops or somehow get that into us because if you don't reflect on life, it, whatever age you are, media will tell you it's ordinary. Sex is ordinary. But what if it's not? What if it's absolutely holy? It's a sacred thing and it can only be experienced in certain ways. Not only is it holy, it's powerful. 
That's the issue. It's holy and it's powerful. Some years ago, I played the saxophone and some years ago, um, Josiah, I think, was about 10, 11 years old, our eldest. I thought, you know, it's about time for you to learn the saxophone. And, and I had a bunch of saxophones, and one that was small enough was this straight soprano saxophone. I thought, well, Josiah could hold that. He's only 10. So um, there was an ad in the paper that said, um, saxophone lessons for free, the first few. I thought, oh, Josh, let's go along for this, and uh, I'll take my saxophone along. Now, this saxophone... I had um, received it from my dad, who got it from some, long story, cousin in France. It was a French Selma Mark II silver-plated saxophone. Now, this is a fancy saxophone. Selma's one of the really beautiful brands of saxophone. Anyway, we we come along, and um, we're about to have our first little lesson, and uh, pull out the saxophone and just sighs holding this Selma Mark II in his hands and the teacher's eyes go. Do you know what that saxophone is? And I went, hey, it's a silver-plated Selma Mark II. Because you know how much that's worth? Well, I got given it. I don't really know what it is. And he said, it's worth about $6,000. I wouldn't be clunking that around with the you know, primary school band. Someone changed the price tags on sex. Have you noticed that? See, I put that saxophone away straight away. (laughs) And I went and bought him a $1,000 saxophone. Something has happened in society where we have the Selma Mark II silver-plated saxophone, our sexuality, and if you don't reflect on it and let the Bible speak, we will think this is nothing special. But nothing could be further from the truth. Who did switch the price tags? Well, the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s emerged from a generation who some of you belong to. It was a generation who came after the war. They didn't know the world wars or the social upheaval of economic depression. The 50s were a time of prosperity and with the development of new technology, Nothing like today, but uh, new technology and certainly with the contraceptive pill, the baby boomers were ripe for revolution. And the pill made promiscuity a risk-free adventure, or so they thought. So they thought. The 60s may have been um, when the explosion took place, but the fuse, as they say, had been lit uh, lit a long time before. Let me give you a couple of minutes of... um, of history, the Victorians. I was going to say, who lived there? But no, <laughs> no one did. 1837 to 1901. They espoused great importance on at least appearing with proper manners and morals. But they were a people who, in effect, had abandoned God. We spoke of the great religious revivals of the 1700s. They were long gone in the Victorian era, really. Um, The way that they they had Darwin coming through in the 1850s, Nietzsche, 1887, writing, God is what? God is dead. Belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable. The Victorians were the ones who supposedly wanted to cover up what? The piano legs because they were too shapely. It was too, seriously, that's the, Victorian, the classic Victorian thing. But 
At the same time, they had their illicit affairs going on behind the scenes and the Victorian age is known for this hiding of the sexual immorality. We don't know why they seem to try to be so moral, but um, they're a great example where man cannot be good on their own. Humanity can't do it on their own. And um, after them, a group of people known as the Bloomsbury set emerged from that generation who pushed the boundaries of sexuality at the very beginning of the 20th century. And they were followed by the bohemian culture of the 1920s, mostly amongst people of the arts, literature and intellectual endeavour. And this is all going on, um, leading into some other significant people speaking into it all. Um, Sigmund Freud, who lived 1856 to 1939, He's teaching about sex. He's saying that all of life is about this desire to, to have sex, to, to understand it and, and um, um, put it through the, the, the paradigm of sex. Anthropologist Mark, Margaret Mead, philosopher Bertrand Russell, and of all things, entomologist. Do you know what an entomologist is? Studying, dissecting insects. There was an entomologist named, named Alfred Kinsey, who wrote a uh, scientific paper. And all these guys wrote papers that nudged the Western world through their so-called well-researched stuff to point us towards a place of sexual freedom, anti-biblical thinking, premarital and extramarital sex being all okay. And they basically generalised the, the, the teaching that sex is natural, so let it flow with whoever and whenever. So when it came to the sexual revolution of the 60s, the free love, love the one you're with decade, the fuse had been burning for many, many decades because a society had chosen that they didn't need God. Proverbs puts it this way. I find this passage is, is so powerful. Whoever commits adultery with a woman, of course it can go either way. A man, a woman committing adultery with a man. Whoever commits adultery lacks understanding. They lack understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Don't you find it interesting that it doesn't say, he who commits adultery lacks self-control. That would make sense. If you commit adultery, you lack self-control. But the writer of Proverbs, the, the wisdom of the Proverbs says, when you commit adultery, you lack what? You lack understanding because you don't understand that you doing that is destroying you because there is a power at work that is far greater than most people would give credence for. The power of sex. Have you noticed in life there are lots of things that we might call laws, but they're actually rules. So we have laws of speeding, but they're more rules, because I remember growing up, there was always 120 on the freeway, now it's 110. So the rules change, we call them laws, but the rules change. Laws are woven into the fabric of life. God tells us about laws. And there are some laws about sex and, and marriage and the intimacy that God has um, designed sex to be safe within, that when we break there are serious consequences. 
you break laws, just like in the garden. You may not die straight away, but you do die. What is it about sex that we have to be so careful about? Well, <coughs> um, Alan Meyer did some great teaching on, um, on sex and has for years, a pastor from um, Melbourne, and runs some stuff called Life Keys, which is really good material. And he wrote this. He says, um, A common view among Christians, young and old, might run something like this. And I'll just read it as a quote. Hey, man, nobody's perfect, right? We all sin somewhere along the road. Look at my dad. He's sort of old and crotchety and he sins by losing his temper and biting the dog. Look at my mum. She sins too. She hits the refrigerator night and day. She's got a real problem with peanut butter sandwiches. Look at me. I've got a bit of a problem with fornication, sex before marriage. But then, as I said, nobody's perfect. Still, what's the worry? God forgives people, doesn't he? God has to forgive dad for losing his temper. God has to forgive mum for overeating. God has to forgive me for my fornication, sex before marriage. What's the difference? Don't you reckon that's pretty close to the mark? Like, honestly. Like, that's what society, that's what general, uneducated Christianity would say. Well, we're, it, it's all sin. There's no greater sin under God. And though that's true, all sin will separate us, it's not what the Bible says. Let's just hear what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. The body is not, 1 Corinthians 6, Six. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Now, he... Paul's just talking about sex outside of marriage. So surely it's not just that a prost going to a prostitute is so bad. But there is a union. He who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Something to think about that one. Like it's hard to get your head around. What are they, what is Paul meaning? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The word Paul uses here for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. And that's where pornography comes from. And it's, it's generally describing any sexual relationship outside of marriage. What does Paul say to do regarding that sin? Flee. He says, flee. The Greek word means just like a fugitive. Run. The guy that used to mentor me He's a pastor and evangelist. He's long gone now. He said one day he was doing a pastoral visit. He turned up to the door and the woman came to the front with no clothes on. And he said, and Jonathan, I turned and I ran. I thought, isn't that, that's, that's a great example. To run. To flee. Sexual immorality is unique 
and the abuse of sex is not ordinary. Verse 18. So what is the problem? This is just trying to make sense of the text, but it's hard to get it. For the believer, what's the problem? Well, the fact that our body, your body is Christ's body, and somehow Paul is saying there is a unique way that sexual sin involves Jesus in the sin. I, I don't quite understand it, but there's something there. For everyone, the problem is the power of sex itself. Sex brings two bodies together. It's designed to stick them Paul says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Salvation brings two spirits together, doesn't it? That's what salvation does. Have a look at the, the, the contrast. Sexual intimacy. Um, we know from the beginning, as we saw at Genesis, sexuality comes out of this mystery of oneness in the Godhead. It's a gift. It's just like there's something there. There's an imaging. There's a connection. Think about this. Spiritual intimacy begins with the Spirit. God comes, makes us born again. Our Spirit comes alive. Christ comes within us. Then the spiritual union starts to affect our mind and will and emotions, doesn't it? We start to become thinking and feeling the way that we should because of the being born again spiritually. And then finally, this spiritual union affects our bodies. Our actions start to change. We're loving Jesus with our physicality. Think of the way that it works with sex. Starts with the body, two bodies joined together. Then there is a connecting of the mind and the emotions and the will, we start to use language, I love you, I, I'm so connected emotionally with you. And then this is the part, I believe sex is designed, I think the Bible teaches that it actually joins the spirit. Now, I know it's, it's weird, isn't it? I, even saying it sounds new agey, but there's something spiritual that is going on that's designed to join us up, to Stick us together. You can't have sex in a marriage and come apart without pain. Amen? Like, it's, it's just, if you think that you can do that, like, it's, you, you can get healing, of course, but it's hard. It's designed to stick. It's designed to stick. You do that with multiple partners. And it is impossible to not diminish yourself. You start to get covered up with the scars and the pain. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that God has given us. Now, a lot of us have been married in this room for many, many years. And I, um, we could have a pretty good discussion. I guess we, we, we've got a lot of experience about sex and marriage. And um, I think we would probably say that sex and marriage is not an easy thing to get right, I think. I think we would probably say it's something that involves work. It's something that's profoundly special but can cause profound pain. Is that fair? Would you give me a nod if I could? Is that right? There is so much potential in sex clearly, 
You can create people. I just want to encourage us to continue to think about just how holy, how powerful, how special sex is and whether it can be okay to have that experienced outside of marriage. And I would say to you, no way in the world. Look at what the Bible teaches us. We are meant to come together under powerful covenantal vows before family and God and friends. And in that context, God has said, this this is safe. Make no mistake, the evil one is out to get us in this regard. And I heard it said years ago, and it's always stuck with me, that the devil hates the fact that a human being born again is the image of God. He hates that. He hates the fact, so he will attack our identity. Does that make sense? He wants to make us not believe that we're a child of the living God. He hates that. He hates relationship because when we relate together, we image something of the Trinity. They will know that we're Christians by our love. So he hates relationship. He hates the image of God. He hates relationship. And he hates sexual um, intimacy mirroring the oneness of God. He hates it because through God-honoring sex in marriage, we get to multiply the very things he hates, human beings. When I heard that, I thought, wow, that's so true. So the devil is out to attack our our identity. He's out to attack our relationships. And he's out to attack, attack our sexuality. So that's why we need to spend 40 minutes every now and then, once in a blue moon, talking about it in a church service. And we've recorded this. Tonight will be different. But we want to just think about it. I'm asking you guys to pray for the mainly younger people that come at night. Pray for them. They might be blessed and challenged. I do not have all the answers. But we need to grapple with it because the evil one has ratcheted up the heat and the powerful message is being given us by every movie that we watch. It's just saying it's fine. Casual sex is fine. And you know what, I, I've done enough marriage counselling and pre-marriage stuff with people to know that I don't want to make a straw man out of someone who is sexually engaged with someone and they're not married. Because I've heard them look at me in the eye and say, when we engage in sex, we see it as holy. We see it as very special and sacred. So I don't want to say sex outside of marriage doesn't feel like it for them. It, it could, it could. But I'm saying like the proverb, wisdom of the Proverbs, normally it will not be. Normally it will not be. And whether someone is, is experiencing a sense of the holiness of sex outside of marriage or not, it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's for marriage. Amen? It is, it's for marriage. We have a deep, deep desire as human beings for true relationship for what we might call naked relationships where I can be me and you can be you and in marriage God has designed us to be comfortable with one another not put painful fig leaves all over ourselves and cover ourselves up with all the shame and the guilt of the junk of our past but that we would come before God and with that person that God has provided for us in marriage, if that's 
our life circumstance. And we are designed to enjoy one another in a naked way. And I appreciate that um, this touches on so much pain for us in this room. It really does. Those of us who would have loved to have married and never married, those of us who have made very bad decisions, those of us who have been married to abusive people, and you hear this stuff and you think, well, that didn't work. And I feel, I feel for you. I just, it's, it's a big question, isn't it? Why on earth did God even create this thing, sex, that's been so abused? And I don't know the answer for that. Other than it's for procreation and sticking people together in the context of marriage that we would in some way image something of what God knows in the Trinity. Let's pray.